Hi, you're listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life with me, your host, Mimi Novik. I'm so happy and thrilled to have you here with me. I have created this series for all of us so we can change our world together and live a more holistic and balanced life. Together, we will share lots of inspiring stories from all walks of life, speak with leading experts, enjoy healthy living ideas, explore music and subjects that inspire each other to always have hope. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Secrets for an Inspirational Life. How are you all today or tonight, as the case may be, wherever you are in the world? Here in the United Kingdom, it's actually evening and it's rather pleasant. And you know what they say about us British, we're a little bit obsessed with the weather. And that is true, I have to say. I hope that you are all in a place of serenity, wherever that may be. In these times, you know, it is trying and difficult. But one thing that we must never lose is the power of hope, the spirit of adventure, the fire within us that burns endlessly. And we must search for people that can ignite that fire within us, that gives us this hope, the passion, the love of life. You know, that certain something in life that makes you want to keep going, wants you to enjoy and embrace life in every sphere. So let us never lose that spirit of adventure, nor the awakening heart, I think, that love could be around the corner for each and every one of us, whether that be family, friends, lovers, whatever it is, let us not lose the power of love. Now, I have the absolute wonderful pleasure to have with me here tonight a very, very special guest. And I have to say to you that, um, you know, I said this to him, but I wanted to do a little dance when I knew that he was coming on. And it's the ever charming and enigmatic Edmund Fokker. Now, I simply don't know where to begin with this story of real mystery. So let me try a little bit to open your minds and um, maybe your eyes as we begin together to weave the intricate tale of this rather intriguing gentleman. Now, firstly, and by no means in order of importance, because he has done some magnificent things, Edmund is an extraordinary violinist. I can really vouch for that. His music is simply beautiful and very, very touching. And there's something about it that really can touch one's soul. But more about that later. Now, amongst many of the things that he has done, he actually was the former chief international engagement, military intelligence and security service in the Netherlands, my goodness. But 
I mean, it is really, really amazing. The other side to it is that he's also a collector and connoisseur of Chinese porcelain. So you get my drift. Everything with this gentleman is enchanting and an adventure. Now, I know this is beginning to sound a lot like James Bond. And secretly, I have to share with you, I think he may have been that in another life. But I'll let him talk about that. Now, Edmund has an incredibly adventurous spirit. But he's also passionate and intuitive and a very sensitive musician who loves people and music. Edmund has played in Carnegie Hall and he has played at palaces and royal courts in front of princes, princesses, but also in war zones, orphanages and hospitals. Every year he plays at various charity galas. His generous spirit continues to sprinkle his magic really wherever he goes. Edmund plays classical music, gypsy music and improvises freely to do anything good. Music in his vision is like love, healing and therapeutic, consoling, reinforcing and inspiring. He has played with the most incredible musicians all over the world and with the most beautiful instruments. And yet he remains mysterious and enigmatic, as I said, through and through. I have to say that when I first heard Edmund's music, it's something that really touched me and it actually brought me to tears. And I am convinced for what it's worth that one of his hidden secret powers is that of healing. But I know he is far too humble to admit that. Tonight, he shares his incredible life story and a little bit of that effervescent magic that follows him wherever he goes. Welcome, dear Edmund. Thank you, dear Mimi. What a lovely introduction. It's humbling indeed. Oh, I'm so, so honoured to have you here tonight, Edmund, really. It's, you know, as I said to you, I wanted to do a little dance when you agreed to come on because... You are such a beautiful, beautiful soul, and truly the honour is mine for you to be here. Uh, you're so lovely. Please stop it. It's wonderful. <laughs> no, it's wonderful to be on your show, and you're, a, you're an incredibly special person yourself. So I'm very, very happy to be uh, joining you in, in, um, in a little conversation about beautiful things of life. How wonderful. Now, you are really a man of mystery, for sure. But amongst the mystery, there is this beauty and this generous I spirit of yours. I know. I know. Now, I know, please. No, you know, it has to be said. I really, really believe this in life that if you see something and someone and something beautiful in somebody, you have to say it. It is really like an honorable thing to do. And I have to say it. And People need to know also that you are really a wondrous person who does so much for so many people. And you're going to tell us a little bit about yourself and your life and where it all began. Uh, where it all began. Um, I'm 
I'm I'm born Dutch, um, and um, my grandmother was English. Her mother was Irish, and from the other side, um, there is some Scottish blood. It's a bit of a mix. Both mm -hmm. my parents are born in Holland, but um, we spoke Dutch at home. Uh, my father regularly spoke English with me. I'm an only child and um, raised on these lovely peninsulas in the south of Holland. Um, they're truly lovely, and I had a wonderful childhood there. I was much loved. Um, and I had a rather, yes, rather sort of idyllic childhood in the province. Uh, the place I was born is called Middleburg. It's a, it's a beautiful old city. It was one of the first cities in Holland to receive the um, East India Company fleet when they came back in 1602. Actually, the first ship that arrived in Holland arrived in Middleburg, and that's why it prospered in the 17th century. Now, we're not going back that far, but um, parts of my some of my family members were actually already involved in that. Um, so there was some adventure in the family. Um, there is quite a lot of adventure in the family, actually. My um, uncle, which is not a real uncle, he's, he's further away than that, but he was a, a pioneer aviator, Anthony Fokker, the one who flew in a sort of self-fabricated, awful thing that you would think would never work. He was flying around a church in 1912. And he built a lot of airplanes in World War I for the Germans, uh, which sounds peculiar, but Holland was neutral in that war. Made a lot of money, et cetera, and, and the rest is history. Um, huge firm who was at one point the biggest um, aircraft manufacturer in the world. Um, but he was possibly not the most um, inspiring. He was inspiring in my family, but there were some others. Um, with some professors in all kinds of things, natural physics, one worked with Einstein very closely, etc. So there was quite a few scientists, lawyers. My father was a general, uh, and I was an only child. And uh, they expected something of me. I think my father expected me to become a lawyer. My mother expected me to become a diplomat. Mm. I became neither. But um, so against that backdrop of idyllic Ceylons, I grew up, I did my school, I... Mm, played golf. I started to play the violin at age 16, horrendously late. Actually, quite funny because my father um, had played the violin in his childhood. But as he was in the resistance in Holland um, during World War II, mm. he was betrayed by someone and uh, taken prisoner went to a prisoner of war camp for almost three years and he was made to play for the Nazis. So that's why he, after the war, uh, although not traumatized by the camp, didn't want to play the violin anymore. But he played a tiny little bit for me, which passed on the flame and um, ignited an incredible passion. And at the age of six, I had some violin lessons but then the teacher said, I'm sorry, Mr. Fokker, to my father, your son has no talent at all. <laughs> I, I, if I would meet the man today, I, I don't know what I would do, actually. Um, but that was so disappointing that I stayed angry oh. for about 10 years. And then I started practicing on an old fiddle, which I found under the bed, which was my father's. And um, I had two years of a little bit of lessons from a man at a music school in, in, in the province 
before I um, graduated from school, finished my high school, and um, I went into military service. Um, I became a young officer at the age of 19, volunteered to uh, go abroad, and um, came back and went to Leiden University. Uh, although I had preferred to um, to go to the conservatorium, to the music academy, but um, it was made clear sort of implicitly by my parents that, uh, mm -hmm. that I was not supposed to become an artist. Um, from this sort of old-fashioned family that had a bit of a 19th century demeanor, um, mostly because of my father. My mother was incredibly mild and witty and beautiful and fun and loving. Uh, my father was fantastically funny. He had a brilliant sense of humor, but he also had this sort of rigid stiffness that uh, he was a bit stiffish in, in a British sense that um, uh, rigidity might actually be the better word. He had a fixed idea of how one should be educated. Um, and he brought it um, lightly as he always made life lighter with his uh, quick and good sense of humor, but it was um, in between uh, all the all the lightness. It was pretty clear what one should not become. So um, I then went to university. Um, I read, started reading law, as of course they expected me to become a lawyer, um, mm -hmm. like my grandfather and great grandfather and their brothers. But then um, I thought it was so frightfully boring, and um, I thought, you know at a university, it would be wonderful to learn things that are um, that can take you further. This is basically, law is sort of a, a, a course in how to, where, where can I find what I need to know? Um, and I wanted to learn something, something that feeds the soul. And there is a rather well-developed aesthetical side to me, which is definitely my mother's um, uh, achievement to bring that in. Uh, so I started reading uh, History of Arts. And with History of Arts, you have to do history, because if you cannot place um, an object or a, or, a, or a building in the time and, and what happened in that time. So I started reading history next to that. So history teaches you, of course, the political, sociological, yes. economical background. And, and um, History of Arts tells you how the people in those days expressed themselves, which uh, I found tremendously interesting, and I still do. Uh, then, of course, to make it a little bit more concrete and give it some more body weight, I did international relations on the side and graduated after a while with, a, with the uh, uh, appropriate master's degree as one should um, at Leiden University in Holland, which is an excellent university. It's the oldest in Holland. It's prestigious, but nice. It's warm. It's it's um, very inviting to also read other things. I did, did some philosophy on the side and some music history, of course, on the side and, and all kinds of things. So that was a, that was a beautiful time as, as I in, that, in those days, I said to my friends, it's basically enjoying your retirement at the wrong side of your career. Mm. Um, that's how it felt. And where did you go from there? Well, that, that was a bit of a crossroads because then I mm. thought, what shall I do? And all those years, I kept on playing the violin with a deep longing that actually I had belonged in a music academy 
although I truly, truly enjoyed learning so much at a university and finding so many um, friends, although I must say I found two big disappointments. The, the first big disappointment was before I went to university, I was in military service and I did this officer's training. I thought before I went there that all officers were gentlemen. Now that was definitely not true. And as I thought- Richard Gere has a lot to answer for that, I think. I, I, I think. I think he never was an officer, except for in that film. Yes. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, that was, he. what he portrayed, of, of course, that he was an American officer, which is altogether mm. a different thing. That's mm. um, um, as everybody in Sandhurst would immediately confirm. But um, well, who had been there? No, the, look, I mean, the Dutch army is, is, is certainly based on, on a lot of the, um, the good things of the British army. Actually, I'm, I'm an officer, a uh, reserve officer still in, um, in one of the guards regiments. And my, my gala uniform, so to speak, is, is this scarlet red. And that's definitely copied from your infantry guards regiments. Mm. And, um, and of course, the traditions are not as rich as in the United Kingdom, as we all know. But then again, you have invented it. It's a different story altogether. And Holland is not such a military nation. We didn't get away. We couldn't get away with certain things that you in England could. And um, mm. anyways, so that was a disappointment. And then I thought all students were gentlemen as well and all interested in, in, in poetry and writing and um, philosophy and, and intelligent things. That, of course, was a complete, complete um, misunderstanding as well. So there were some disappointments down the road, which is good. Uh, that's, um, and, and that, but that's what happens when you're an only child. And the, you, of course, have these dreams and they become realities. Um, well, as you may uh, or not recognize. Yes, indeed. And in a way, only children seem to live in different worlds to everybody else because they have, I suppose, the time and the chance to explore that imagination. I do believe that uh, we always have the chance to live in a different world with our imagination. Mm. Mm. I think I, from time to time, deliberately still do. When I think the times are extremely ugly and I'm, I'm, I'm a complete realist, I mean, mm. I'm definitely with two legs on the ground and I've been entangled in operations and, and, and missions that are very, very down to earth. But um, I do choose from time to time to flee into this other world. And for me, mostly music is providing me with that possibility. But, um, and I think everybody and also all your listeners have that option, have that possibility even even if you live in a very small home and a very small house and you have maybe one room and you have to share that room with your partner um, you still have the opportunity to um, to climb uh, that staircase in your mind to an attic where you find all kinds of objects of your dreams and that you can play with and that can bring back memories or actually 
and let material, let, let future hopes materialize. So I, I strongly believe in, 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 uh, in that. I do, I still do. And how often would you say, Edmund, that you actually travel to these other worlds? Because it's something that in these times, especially with people that I have spoken to and had contact with, more and more people seem to be sort of awakening to that within themselves. Whereas before, I think people were a little afraid to actually cross that bridge. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, look, um, I, I travel to these other worlds the moment I, I, I feel the need for it. But um, mm -hmm. there is, of course, this other thing in my life, which is incredibly important, which is music. Uh, I, I play that, that almost forbidden violin. Uh, it wasn't forbidden because my, my parents loved it, but they didn't want me to become professional violinist because they thought, A, I started way too late and they had a good point there um, initially, uh, at least so it seemed. But uh, also they thought it was very insecure because you're, you're going to be an artist and artists, of course, are completely dependent on um, whether they will succeed in, in what they are doing and it might actually be, become a rather a disappointing exercise altogether. So, but having said that, um, when I was young, when I was 19 and I, I, I played the fiddle then for three years, there was this famous violinist in Holland coming to visit the province because he was going to play the Paganini Violin Concerto, number one. And of course, I was in complete admiration of him and his talent and skills. And then he was also coming to stay in our home. So that was probably because it was very close to the concert hall. And um, I can't remember why, but he was there. So I was listening at his door when he was practicing all kinds of uh, horrid sections of the Paganini Concerto which is finally difficult, of course. Um, and then he opened the door, he had noticed, and he said, um, but um, I hear you play the fiddle, so let me hear, what are you doing? So I played a bit for him. I was practicing the, Men the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, which is in itself already a difficult piece, especially when you're just uh, playing the fiddle for three years. And so he said, well, that, this is amazing that you're already playing the, the Mendelssohn. So uh, I said, how did you do that? I said, well, I... I I got the music out of the library and I, I learned myself how to read notes and I've been listening to Heifetz and Menuhin and Oistrach and, and basically all the great ones. And um, I tried to to find where where this took place on the fiddle and, and that's how I, he said, well, that's amazing. He said, well, let me tell you one thing. He said, um, what would you like to become? I said, well, I would have liked to become a violinist, but it, it's pretty clear that this is, too late maybe and uh, my parents would like me to become something else and those were the days when kids still listen to their parents yes. so that's a bit different now i have to indeed uh, i know what i'm talking about but um <laughs> one by the way is studying law in Leiden, so oh okay count, count my blessings but uh anyways so he said listen to me edmund he said you know my name is jaap van zweden he's now the by the way the conductor of the new york philharmonic um, so he succeeded completely in, in everything he wanted to do and still is very successful. Mm -hmm. uh, he's about two years older than I am. And he said to me, he said, listen, Edmund, I'm going to be the best violinist in 
the Netherlands and um, hopefully beyond, you are going to be the best amateur. Because, you know, I did a rather modest school and after three years, they said to me, he said, uh, Mr. Van Zweden, if you can do something else, then please go and do that because your school results are appalling. He said, you did a fantastic school and um, you don't seem to have to work too hard for it. So you go to university, study something and do that and become the best mm. amateur fiddler. Because then he said, with his strong Amsterdam accent, and that was very, very funny and very charming. He said, um, you will have the roses, uh, not the thorns. Um, and that was actually well put in a way. He was sort of right, because I always played little concerts and recitals and they became, they became bigger and bigger. And mm. um, it's true. I mean, uh, being an amateur, you can sort of, you know, maybe miss a note here and there. I, I actually find that as a big professional, you can also miss a note here and there. The most important thing in music is, of course, does somebody touch your soul? Uh, like you said in your introduction, which makes me very happy, uh, because that means that we speak the same language. Do you touch someone? Uh, what we see nowadays a lot, especially also with... <clears throat> many um, Asiatic performers, that they are so skilled, they are so incredibly technically skillful, but many of them do not touch me at all because Beethoven is, is missing. The notes of Beethoven are there. Beethoven himself is questionable whether he's there at all, uh, but <laughs> he's the one playing, right? Mm -hmm. I want to know. In, in, in the past, in former times, I could... I recognize, I still recognize today, if somebody plays um, Heifetz's Beethoven concerto, I know it's Heifetz. I, I can tell by his tone. Chrysler, Perlman, uh, Menuhin, Francis Cutty, all these great, Grutmio, all these great violinists, these fantastic players, I recognize them by their tone. They had a signature. They were recognizable. Nowadays, I don't recognize anyone anymore, except with a few exceptions. You know, and that has to do with personality. I would like to learn about the personality of the one playing. There is a margin in which you can actually express yourself. There mm. is. Mm. Mm. Anyway, that may be a little bit too deep on the music, but but uh, you catch my drift. I, I, it, it's it's a signature thing, and if someone has that personality, that that is, let's say, outstanding in the sense that I recognize them and I like how they phrase because making music is not any different from phrasing a sentence. Uh, if I like how they phrase, and that is close to what the composer must have meant, because that is, of course, a condition, mm -hmm. then uh, we are here to serve the composer, but there is a margin. Then you get these goosebumps. Then your breath can be taken away. And that is what we want, right? We want to be touched. We want to be moved. We don't necessarily want to be impressed. I mean, there are so many 12-year-old uh, Korean girls that can play Paganini Capriccios, and then I'm truly impressed. Mm. But it, being impressed is not what I look for. I want consolation. I want an artist that is telling me something that I recognize, that paints a, an abstract picture, which materializes before my eyes or in my ears, and he's bringing me consolation. He's telling me something. 
He's putting my mind at ease. He's giving me space. He's giving me time. That is what I want in music. And if I make music, then that is what I want to give to people. I want to put their souls at ease. I want to show them that better times are coming. Um, I also want to show them that I know their pain. I understand their pain, that I felt pain, that I regularly and maybe daily feel pain, um, but that there is an upside, there is hope, there is a future, there is a brightness, there's light. And with music, whether you're religious or whether you're not religious, but that brings whatever God you pray to, brings him or her much closer to you. This is truly and really a prism that you can go through to um, get closer to your religious desires um, and, and ethereal uh, awareness. So beautifully put. So, so beautiful, Edmund. And I have to, again, share your sentiments about music because it's something that played a huge part and still does in my life. And I was, I have to say to the listeners, I was having, you know, as you do one of those, you know, hectic, mad, stressful days. And Edmund sent me some of his music, which we will have at the end of the episode because we just have to share it. It's so wonderful. And in that moment of craziness and madness, everything stood still. And something touched me in a way that you couldn't put into words. There are no words for things like this. It was simply a resonance and a recognition of a soul and I felt the pain in this music, but I felt love, I felt hope, and so much that you could never express with words because words are cheap. But this music, Edmund, that you sent to me really had a healing effect on me. And I have to say to you, I've been playing it every day. I didn't tell you this, but I have been playing it every day and especially at night time, because it gives me such calm and peace. And I think this is a place within all of us that we would like to feel that connection that's far deeper than we could explain. Beautiful. Wow. Uh, I'm impressed that you're playing it every day. How wonderful. I am, because it brings me such peace. And yet it makes friends with sadness and grief at the same time in a strange kind of way. But in it, there is also the beauty of new beginnings. And it's simply beautiful, I have to say to you. And I really do, as I said in the beginning, I do think and believe more than think I do believe that there is a healing power to your music well I'm happy to hear that because uh, maybe a, a few words on how this these recordings came about mm. um, 
please, um, yes. We're all living, of course, in rather strenuous, difficult, strange, and to most people, completely unknown times, as in unknown circumstances, new circumstances with this um, this this uh, annoying virus, which is everywhere, um, and and we're all confronted with it, whether we like it or not, whether we believe that it is uh, uh, this serious or not. We all have to deal with the effects, and many, many people are completely um, devastated because of the situation, because of the economic situation that that caused, mm. that was caused by the lockdowns that we are facing, and uh, and that is truly awful. And uh, whether you whether you have the um, corona disease and suffered from it and and recovered, or whether you are a victim of the economic side of the whole affair, doesn't matter that much. It it brings instability, and it brings also um, and a sort of indistinct feeling of fear. People have some fears and they don't actually know what to be afraid of. And we all do not know how long it's going to last. And, um, and, and, and that's a difficult thing. So I thought in March, um, you know, I had all kinds of wonderful concerts coming up because Today, exactly one year ago, the October the 30th, um, this is how, this is the day that we're recording this, is um, one year ago that I played in Carnegie Hall. And that was for me, maybe one of the most important things in my life. I never would have thought that I, as an autodidact violinist, would be invited by um, a member of the Paganini family who wanted to organize, to initiate a concert to honor her ancestor. And she asked me to organize it and to play there. So I organized it. I got four top fiddlers out, some winners of the Paganini competition in Genoa and, um, and some others. And, um, and there was somebody good enough to lend us all the most incredible Guarneri del Jesus. Guarneri del Jesu is a violin which is uh, comparable to Stradivarius. They're both um, the most expensive, most sought after instruments in the world. Uh, with that difference that from Stradivarius, there are still 650 violins known to us and uh, Guarneri del Gesù, uh, only 250. And uh, so I was playing on an instrument that was insured for 14 million euros. My goodness. No, incredible. Incredible. You must tell us, how did you feel? Firstly, to be invited to Carnegie Hall, of course. And this must have been a dream come true for you. To this day, I still cannot believe that I actually played there. And, and this is not overdone. I still cannot believe that this has taken place in my life. I mean, this is how special it is. Uh, you know, all the jokes about Carnegie Hall, uh, how do you get to, to Carnegie Hall, people asking the way in New York, uh, practice, practice, practice. Yes. Mm. Yeah, it is, it is, of course, the Valhalla. It is the, the, um, the ultimate thing. It is uh, the neck plus ultra thing. And I had played three weeks before in the, in the Royal Concert Hall in Amsterdam, which is called Concertgebouw. That is horrible 
Dutch G, that would pronounce like the Scots, but um, like the Scottish. But it, it's um, that was already quite something. That was it's a beautiful uh, hall. There's a small hall and a big hall. I was playing in the small hall, which is has an intimacy, and and the hall that I played in in Carnegie Hall there as well. You have different halls. Was the Wild Hall, and the Wild Hall has the same intimacy and rather nice acoustics. Um, although I must say that the, 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 the small hall in Amsterdam has slightly better acoustics. But anyways, it is an incredible thing to be there uh, amongst these great violinists that are all great professionals. I mean, there were really some fantastic people there. Very young man, Daniel Tsu, who had been the last winner of the Paganini competition, played amazingly. And, um, and, 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 and some others, it, it, it was amazing. And we, they were all accompanied by my pianist, Jochem Geene. He's a Dutch pianist who has accompanied Yehudi Menuhin and Ivry Gitlis and Sander Veig and, and, and some other famous people. He's, he's a fantastic man and, and, and a lovely person. But um, so yeah, that was, it was truly impressive. The difficulty of that night was that I was presenting it because there was somebody supposed to present it, but uh, it's a she, it's a rather well-known she in the US. And she said to me, uh, can we, um, uh, can you write out what I have to say? So I did. And um, and then she came the morning of the concert, she came to me and she said, I I'm so afraid I will mispronounce all these names. Um, I have all the competitions that people in fiddles and stuff. Yeah. And so I said, I said, but look, my dear, um, whatever her name was, um, which I know, but I'm, I'm not going to mention that. I mm -hmm. said, um, I said, do you think that in the United States they would notice? Um, that was a joke, of course. Yes. Um, <laughs> which was, uh, I'm afraid, not possibly not perceived as such. But um, anyways, she refused. So I, I've presented the whole evening myself as well, which I quite enjoyed. But it, that's it, rather lovely, actually. What an honour. Yes, it is. And and it's fun as well, because it mm -hmm. gave me the opportunity to also tell some little anecdotes here and there about uh, people playing that have played there and and peculiar things have happened in Carnegie Hall. You know, there was this night where um, that that's an unforgettable one. Yasha Heifetz, uh, he, it's safe to say that he was possibly the greatest violinist that ever lived. Uh, we don't know about Paganini because we don't have his recordings, but uh, Heifetz recordings we do have. And for certain composers, certainly Heifetz was the greatest. He gave his debut recital in 1917, where he was allegedly either 16 or 17 or 18. His mother lied probably about his birthday. When, like, nobody's quite certain about it. Anyways, in the hall, were, of course, all the famous people of that time, all the famous musicians. So there was Misha Elman, of course, one of the great violinists of the era, sitting next to Godofsky. And Godofsky was a pianist who was a pupil of Franz Liszt. So you can imagine, this was, uh, and, and the hall was filled with them. Fritz Kreisler was there. They were all there. After the first two or three pieces, Misha Elman turned to his neighbor, the pianist Godofsky, and said, it's rather warm in here, don't you think? 
And Godofsky smilingly looked at Elman and he said, not for pianists. <laughs> oh, <awesome. laughs> that's and, and that's exactly how it was. Heifetz was, of course, so incredibly, incredibly good. So virtuoso. So his, with impeccable intonation and fantastic mm. going. Everybody, Fritz Kreisler walked out of that room in Carnegie Hall and said, we might as well break our fiddle over our knees and start playing billiards. Um, it was, uh, who was it again? A famous writer in um, English um, who wrote to Heifetz and said, dear boy, um, I was at your recital. Please, before you go to bed, play one false note in order not to anger the gods. Um, many, many anecdotes about Carnegie Hall. And tell us a little bit for listeners out there who are not familiar, because some people are not. Um, Carnegie Hall, tell us a little bit, Edmund, about um, a little bit about the history of it. Um... I, well, the Carnegie Hall is, is typical for um, American uh, history. is a 19th century thing that came up, and um, uh, it was slowly developed um, into different halls. It was a, it was a, it's a historical building uh, in in the heart of um, in the heart of Manhattan, and the most famous period actually was this early 20th century. So it really became super famous, let's say, around 1900. Uh, it was there in the 1880s, 1890s, and then um, in the early 1900s, it became the hall in the world. Mm. And also mm, greatly helped later on by Isaac Stern. Isaac Stern, a great, uh, great violinist, unfortunately, possibly not the most sympathetic of all. He was actually so um, incredibly complacent about uh, with his own playing that he refused Yasha Heifetz to play in Carnegie Hall anymore because he wanted to make sure that he was the greatest violinist in the world and so he played in Carnegie Hall not Heifetz but uh, many things were going on around this hall and everybody in the world still considers Carnegie Hall as the number one hall to play so mm. if you've never played in Carnegie Hall then you can't be that good that's a bit how it is Yes, and you have. And I think what's extraordinary, and yeah. and I love these types of stories about humans and their lives and their dreams, is that it's something that was deep inside of you, this artistic flair, this artistic light, that look where you are now, really, and you have played in palaces and royal courts, but you've also played, Edmund, in war zones and orphanages and hospitals. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, look, uh, Anthony Fokker was, was married to a, a German baroness so there were, and, and her mother was uh, something else decent. And, and so there, were, there are some peculiar cousins here and there in the world. So that, that was, that's the part of the palaces, et cetera. That's a family link and friends it's a social environment but uh and and whether lockdown or no lockdown there are also always some um maybe not always one and a half meters away parties at at uh, private things in palaces here and there but uh 
The other side is, of course, um, the military side. Uh, Afghanistan, I've, I've been in Afghanistan um, in a military capacity. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, somebody phoned me and said, look, uh, all artists cancelled to play in Mazari Sharif, which is uh, a, a barracks, it's a camp in, in Afghanistan, mm. a bit more north, northeast, and uh, there's a lot going on always there. Uh, it's not as bad as Ur's gun, but it's it's not not great. I mean, there's definitely a war going on. And mm. I've been there before, in a, as I said, in a military capacity. So uh, I know something about that. Uh, all artists cancelled. Um, can't we do something? This was a singer, and a female singer, soprano, good soprano, very good. And, um, and I said, well, I'd love to. Yeah, that's a great idea. So we put a program together, and we went there. Um, we were invited by the German army. It was also quite exceptional. So I flew on a German plane, uh, not a Fokker this time, and the, uh, the Air Force is not a uh, normally fly with a Fokker to Kandahar, but now we flew with something else to Kabul and then on to Mazar-i Sharif. And then we played for Christmas. And you know what? Christmas, of course, coming up pretty soon already again, is, of course, a special time. And we are now this year probably going to experience a Christmas which resembles a tiny little bit Christmas in war zones because we will be restricted as well, I'm afraid. Um, it's not not truly comparable. I mean, a war zone is a war zone and there are many more fears and, and, and uh, out of this world sort of situations going on. But to play music in uh, an environment where people uh, are doing their jobs, but deep down with their thoughts, in their thoughts, they are at home, where they would have loved to have been, uh, with a with a with a Christmas tree and the, and, and Boxing Day, etc. But they're not. They're in a war zone and they're in a camouflage uh, outfit, and they're all sitting militarily, uh, militarily, and neatly organised side by side. And there is a pianist and a singer and a violinist, and um, and that made it very very special and. I remember playing uh, Ave Maria at the uh, towards the end of the program, and even amongst the toughest special forces, there were moments where the the toughest were looking down and sort of not showing their eyes anymore, and the um, uh, the ones that were let's say very much themselves had a handkerchief out, which is completely understandable, and which is absolutely necessary as well you know let it out let your mm. show your emotion it's fine there's nothing to be ashamed of it is what makes us all human and um, we did three days of concerts there um, um, and I did something on my own because there was a, a hospital in the camp of um, for the military and I played something there as well some solo Bach uh, repertoire and, and uh, Johann Sebastian Bach is of course that's incredibly organized music but if you listen to that for a while it becomes like a mantra almost you go with it in the in this rhythmical seemingly mathematical flow of notes and you learn to feel the emotion behind it and uh, that was a moment that I will never forget that was extremely extremely emotional 
but also very gratifying that um, that you were um, given this instrument and you have worked on this instrument and you have a sort of modest talent on it uh, sufficiently to 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 perform on it and uh, and to to bring consolation and peace of mind to other people. So I'm very grateful that I was in the opportunity to play there. And in a way, I suppose, Edmund, is that when we touch somebody's life, it has to have an effect on our life. Mm -hmm. I think it's an exchange of whether that be emotions, whether that be a heartfelt connection. I think everyone that we somehow touch, whether that be with your music, for example, in the war zones or in the hospital, it becomes part of you, surely. Yes, it's so true. That's that's well said. It's, it's really true. And that is basically the reason why I never record it. So I've always played because I strongly believed always, and that has changed a bit, but I'll come to that. I strongly believed always that music was meant for that moment. So, and the way you perform a certain piece is different every time. Now that you will find, for instance, within the, the let's say the group of the young Korean players, you will hear it every time the same way with the more seasoned older artists, especially, uh, let's say from, from, from Europe or Russia as well, or America, you will hear different interpretations depending on circumstances and public. I mean, you're playing for your public and you're playing what you, you, what you feel at that moment. And there, there is something esoteric about this. And I've noticed this time and time again. I sometimes play with my eyes closed, but in spite of playing with my eyes closed, I feel where the music is the is best received isn't that interesting and mm. then i open my eyes and then i sometimes you can't see because of the lights but when the lights go on again then i i sometimes i see people and think oh yeah that went there and that those notes went there yeah those people left there at the back they they got it they there was an intense connection with them and um and, and therefore, I basically was always very much interested in performing and playing for people until, of course, March this year, uh, when I started for the first time recording. And tell us a little bit about, um, you have, is it an album that you have out? Yeah, I, I mm -hmm. uh, when, when all these, um, we, we basically started by saying hey, that I performed in Carnegie Hall, et cetera, and that because of that, I got quite a few um concerts here and there uh but because of corona i couldn't do them so then i thought okay you know what i'm going um to a studio which belongs to a friend of mine mm -hmm. and he had told me that if he would not be uh getting some sort of commissions he would be uh going broke within six weeks then i thought could we possibly do something there let's combine something i want to record because I cannot concertize and I want to record because I think um, this music is needed. I saw on the news 
in so many countries, so many people being so lonely, especially the elderly that cannot even be visited by their children or grandchildren, cannot be kissed, cannot be hugged, cannot be embraced. I thought I have to make a musical uh, hug, to give them a musical hug and support them with with consoling and truly um, uh, peaceful and warm uh, embracing music. So I went into that studio and I had made a list of 16 pieces from the classical era, from classical music up to film music. So I I recorded all kinds of things. I mean, I recorded Schindler's List, the, the theme from the film, but I also recorded Meditation from Massenet, which is a basically beautiful encore. Many people play this as an encore. Uh, I played something from the Baroque, a sonata from a, a lago, a movement from Viracini, which nobody almost knows, up to something that everybody knows, like like the theme from the film The Deer Hunter, the Cavatina, and um, the Cinema Paradiso, which is a beautiful theme written by the great film composer Ennio Morricone. Yes, also- beautiful. Beautiful. And how many pieces, um, Edmund, do you have on that um, album? Um, I I have to record two more pieces. Mm -hmm. One by by Charlie Chaplin, which is, I think, a fantastic piece. Eternally, it's called, from um, one of his films, um, from Limelight. Uh, Then I have, I think, I think it's 18 pieces altogether. Yeah, it's an album. And why is CD? Because uh, I call it my lockdown favorites. Um, because in uh, it's a charity CD. So it is partly sponsored by friends of mine and myself. And um, the pianist and, and myself are playing for free. The studio has to be paid. So we needed a bit of sponsorship to, uh, to, to pay for the studio, who survived, by the way, because of the oh, CD. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's that's, that's a wonderful thing, thing to do. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a little thingy that you can do that makes that makes happy as well. Mm. And then, so 300 CDs are going to be given for free to care institutions, hospitals, um, hospitiums, uh, hospices, uh, hospices where people go basically to die, um, and 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 also care workers, so people that that work in that field because the strain on them is tremendous. And I think the appraisal for them is not big enough. Um, And they also need, when they come home after having seen what they have seen and done, they also need peace of mind and music can clearly, clearly give you that. So, um, Mm. so that is what we, what we have produced. It's almost done and it will be brought out, I think within three weeks we should have the cd out and uh, and then of course from the thousand first cds that we're going to make the other 700 are going to be sold and the uh, profit of that is going to a foundation where we help young musicians so how wonderful really and will it be available for everybody to download or to buy where can people get it yeah, it's an excellent question. Um, I'm actually talking now to uh, people that will put this uh, entire CD on uh, Spotify, on uh, Idagio and Deezer. So these are three digital platforms where people mm. can download music from. Yes, because that's a good idea. Yeah. Because I yeah. think it people have to hear this, really, it to 
touch them in the way that I have heard with your music. It's really needed. And, and you know what I loved what you said, Edmund, about when you're playing and you know exactly who right. it has touched in that moment. This is so funny. Oh, yeah. my goodness. You know, I had tears in my eyes because I really felt what you were saying there, that mm. so many people need this essence of love. True. It's true. And there is so much to give. You know, there is mm. music has so much power. Um, it, it's so incredibly um, loving. It, it can bring so much give so much love to people um and the only possibly only good thing or one of the few good things of, of the corona crisis is this people have more time to truly listen and in line with somebody i admire greatly which is a, a monk called Tiknat khan um he said uh he's wonderful he, isn't he He's wonderful. This man is mm. unbelievable. I think uh, he's a holy person. I really do. Yes, he's. He's. Um, the Germans have a have a lovely word as they mm. they always have these these words that are put together. It's in German. It's called a Lichtgestalt, and it basically means a person of light. Oh yes. Uh, and uh, I I think he is completely enlightened. Um, mm. And two of his most important principles are, um, of course listening but he calls it deep listening and with that he says you know if you listen to a person then try to become that person and feel what he or she feels when she tells you the deepest things and that is very close to the second uh, key word in his uh, preachings and teachings is um, compassion if people mm -hmm. would have more compassion then the world would be a completely different place Indeed, it would. And I wanted to ask you, actually, is what is it that stirs your soul? What is it that gives you the ability to play such beautiful music and to express it in such and really, I can only say in an otherworldly way? <laughs> How could I possibly answer this question, Mimi? How could I possibly? This is, um, it's beautiful what you say. Um, and thank you very much. You're very welcome. I find this a huge compliment coming from you. Um, well, yeah, what can I possibly say? I mean, I was raised with a lot of love. And when, when, when my parents were just married, doctors said to my mother that she probably could not have children, which was a big disappointment to both my parents because they would have loved to have had children. And eight years after that verdict, something peculiar rolled out. That was me. And um, they loved it, of course. They had never expected that. So have I been spoiled? Materially, no. But I have been spoiled with attention and love. But they also told me um, that I had a duty to um, to be open-minded and loving, um, non-judgmental. Uh, that I should be very aware of of privileges. Uh, that I was born in a in a country where there was no war. Both my parents had experienced the Second World War, of course, and 
they were very aware of the fact that it is wonderful that you can live in freedom with all the democratic um, freedoms that we have nowadays. Um, although and there is a lot of stress going on right now about this. But um, there was always this, this sort of noblesse oblige, as the French say. There was always uh, the, the certain privilege of a, of a, of a family that, that had, a, had a, a decent life that you had to give back as well. And, um, and I, especially I think of my mother when I think of, of the fact that she was as lovely to the doorman as to the king. And, and she, she expressed it that way as well to me. She, this is exactly what she said to me, my father as well. My father said in his particularly British way, he said, you know, a gentleman is born, not made. Yes. Uh, you can find them anywhere. Somebody can come from under a stone and be completely refined in his or her manners. Although never been taught the etiquette of what, let's say, the sort of bourgeois middle classes have now made okay. into a, a special art. But he said that's ninety uh, percent of that is complete crap. He said, you know, it is. It's about the inner civilization. He said, I don't care about the icing. Um, I care what is under the icing, and um, and that is inborn. Decency, the utter decency and the utter nice niceness of the, the, the beauty of a of, of a character is, um, is is visible when you when you look somebody in the eye you can see it already yes um, and that I strongly believe in that I know princes that are assholes excuse my French and I know people that came from nowhere that should be princes yes to nobility of the soul and, um, and that's how it is. But um, answering your question, I simply love to give. And I believe that of all the people in the world, there might just be less than 1% beyond repair because there's something genetically has gone wrong. But of, let's say, the 15% of the population that is officially not okay because they've been in a prison or they still are or they have committed terrible things, I think that 15% has been made into this because of circumstances and with the right approach and with sufficient love and care and the right music, I think you can change a lot for the better. I strongly believe that. I think the power of love through whatever, through music, of course, is my thing, but it could be through poetry. It could be through simple kindness um, is very, very strong. Beautifully said, Edmund, really. And it's something that I think we forget is that we, in fact, are love. As beings, we are love. And I learned this as a child very early on that I wanted to be, you know, I wanted everyone to be happy. I wanted to live in this fairyland. And I thought that's what it was going to be about, life. Well, of course, things happen in between. But I still have that belief that we as people, as beings, whoever and whatever we are, ultimately are love. And all it takes is a little bit of kindness, 
a little bit of love, a little bit of music and compassion to really open another person's heart. I agree. It's true. Lovely. This sounds like um, famous last lines. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, there are so many things that we could talk about here. And I know that myself, for one, would be thoroughly, you know, immersed in all the, the wonder that you have, really, Edmund. And it is so wonderful, I think, to share these moments with people such as yourself who are willing to give of this beautiful soul and compassion. It is so, so needed in this world right now. And you really are a light amongst the darkness. That's very sweet. Um, it is lovely to talk to you as well. And um, um, preparing this uh, wonderful podcast of yours, uh, we've been speaking um, intensely about uh, a thousand subjects and um, it has filled me with joy every minute of that. It's, it's wonderful to talk to you. Um, it's wonderful to feel your, your, uh, your true care, your authenticity in, in the way you um, share your feelings and open your heart to people and give and that's what you do and and you do that in a wonderful way and uh, very happy to, um, to to have met you um, and we are we're basically warriors to bring the light from the same side to the other side so we're 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 actually fighting side by side for the same good cause and um, and and healing and, and bringing this. And that, that is great. That's it's very, very gratifying. Um, and it's wonderful to, um, to meet one's peers when, uh, when fighting for a good cause in a wonderful way. There's one thing that we, of course, basically should decide on for your listeners. Uh, mm. That is which piece shall we choose? Yes. Musical piece shall we choose? And I'm, I'm going to list... Um, a few. I'm going to name a few so that we have an idea. And as you have heard, I think most of it, we might talk about this a little bit. I think the first thing I sent you was Schindler's List, which is, of course... We have to have that. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yes, I love it. <laughs> that's, that's the point where... I thought, oh my goodness, and I, I just thought I, I'm just going to get on the floor now and just weep for the next <laughs> day or two, you know. And um, I did, and uh, I'm, I'm the type I can cry at anything, you know. And um, so that's a definite. Let's let's have that. Okay. Carry on. What else? Well, yeah, actually, this is fantastically written by John Williams, a fantastic, um, fantastic film composer, of course, and beautifully played by Itzik Perlman for the motion track and uh, I gave it a bit of a slightly more personal um, rendition. Um, Another thing which is on my CD is the air from Bach on a G string as it is called, it's played on one string. It's it's beautiful but it's maybe a little more for, uh, it gives a lot of 
air, as it, it's called air, but it, it does give a lot of air because it's so slow. Almost all the pieces, actually all the pieces, are under heartbeat rate. And uh, I did that on purpose because, you know, uh, you have this slow cadenza it helps. It is so pleasant to have that. I did also... Let's have that. Let's have that. Let's have three. <laughs> Let's have three. Let's have three. Um, well, you know, which one I like because it, it brings hope. It's cheerful. It's charming. Mm. And it's one that you have heard as well is um, the Cinema Paradiso by Morricone. Yes. It's a sweet piece. It's very sweet. It's, of course, this, this beautiful Italian film of this boy that sees the operator of the, at the cinema and he thinks, oh, my God, that would be the job that I would love to have in this tiny little Italian village. Uh, as all Italian villages are charming, this one is super charming as well. Mm. And then he grows up and he comes into puberty and adolescence and he, he's... he's Adolescence, and he's, he's let's say twenty or something, and he falls in love with a local girl, and then there is the moment where she never saw him, of course, and she she was very pretty, and then after a few years they do come together, and then there is this love theme, Cinema Paradiso. So it's it's extremely romantic. It is a love theme. It is Italian, and it is. Oh, we have to have it then. We have to have it. It. We have to have it. Tell yeah. me, did you ever meet the wonderful Enya Morricone? No, but as you phrased the question, I think you have, right? <laughs> Only in concert at Blenheim Palace, but um, not in the I wondered if you had. It, he, he has been a little bit of a hero for, for me since I was a child. Mm, lovely. Mm. Yeah, well, everybody knows, of course, uh, many of his tunes, especially the... Um... Yes. Everybody knows that one. and But there's so many things that he wrote, and, and so many... Uh, Malena is also a beautiful melody. Oh, yes, yes. Very lovely. Is that with Monica Bellucci? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the beautiful. special thing about this piece, about Cinema Paradiso, is that mm. he wrote this one with his son together. And that I find really? especially touching. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That makes that, it, for me, it gives, it gives the whole piece another dimension. As I have yes. two sons and, and, and they're both quite musical as well. And, and, uh, but I could uh, just imagine, I, I saw him sitting there huh, in my imagination, of course, with his son writing this absolutely lovely piece. And there's a funny story to the recording of this because we had a tape that we had uh, altered, which was an accompaniment tape, which was an orchestra. And uh, the orchestra was playing the accompaniment and I would then play the solo part and we would record that. Mm -hmm. Now, in that studio, which is the best classical music studio in the Netherlands, really great, they were playing that. And as I was then playing my part over it, we noticed that the recording was completely uneven. So there was not one bar that was the same length as the next bar, which is very fascinating, but not if you have to fill it in, right? Mm. So I said to my friend, I said, look, he said, I, he said, I know, I know, I know. He, he was behind glass in his control room and he was thinking, how the hell is Edmund going to fit this in? 
<laughs> so I did my best and I came close, but he said, he said, you did a tremendous job, but it is, it's not working for some reason. I said, no, I said, because, you know, bar 43 and bar 44 are, he said, I know, I know you don't have to. I said, could you just sh sit down here behind your piano? I have the music here, the sheet music here. Could you just play it? And he is a tremendous pianist. And really, as I said, he accompanied menu and et cetera. He exactly. sat down and played the whole thing, a prima vista, and um, and I played to him, and then it got this uh, sensitivity that it should have. And we looked at each other, and <laughs> I said, "Well, look, this is a no-brainer, right? We're going to do this for violin and piano." And nobody does that because there are actually two good recording recordings on on the World Wide Web on YouTube. Mm -hmm. One is one is made by my good friend, um, dear friend uh, Laurent Corsia, in my view, the best violinist in in France. And the other one is, of course, uh, Itzhak Perlman again. Mm. Uh, Itzhak Perlman has the, has the, 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 the broad, wide, um, lovely, rich American approach. Um, and we went for a more personalized version. Uh, it's a love story after all. It is Italian. It's not American. Um, and it is, um, although I, I'm a big fan of Perlman, I admire the man greatly, but mm. here and there you can have some more subtleties to certain things. So, and that's how we recorded it. And um, it gave us great joy. And, and, and the piano playing of, of my friend there is, is beautiful, I think. So, um, and we know each other well. So we, we, we truly intertwine. It's a beautiful thing to, you know, to have friends as well who are artists and can share in the joy of creating something really that will live beyond time and space i think it's a beautiful thing to do so true yeah you know the good thing is um i i, I played a lot with another pianist uh, with many other pianists but but with one particularly particular other pianist and then sometimes we had not seen each other for let's say, uh, six months or something. And then um, we would say to each other, shall we sit down and catch up or shall we just not speak a word and start improvising mm. and, and start to improvise? And that's then what we did. Then we started to improvise. And then it took maybe 20, 30, 40 seconds. But then after this 40 seconds, we started to take the same harmonic terms turns at the same time so when he went from b minor to a g sharp i did exactly without looking at each other the same thing and then we were completely harmonized again and it was as if we had caught up with stories of what we had been doing these past six months which we hadn't but we we improvised together we looked at each other and it always ended completely there where uh, a musical piece ends it, it got a natural end and then we always embraced each other we laughed tremendously <laughs> bloody hell Isn't this amazing? <laughs> we, we completely caught up I, I know where you're standing now he said yeah I know where you are fantastic and then we started working absolutely fantastic in a way it's this the music spoke and your right. music and his music and you spoke to each other through you know the yeah. notes of your heart in That's fact right. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I love the energy that you bring, Edmund. It's really something quite sensational. And, you know, I want to thank you as we come 
to the end, really once again for gracing us with your presence here. And I always ask my guests this, what advice would you give, you know, in a paragraph to other people to keep hoping something maybe that's helped you in your life and still does to this day? Ah, well, well, there's a couple of things in life. This is a difficult question. And, and, and before I answer it, I, I want to thank you for having me on your show. Um, I'm, I'm very grateful that you invited me. And uh, I fully enjoyed um, every moment that we spoke. So thank you. Me very too. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's a great pleasure. Thank you very much for that. Um, I strongly believe that it is um, crucial for people to stay curious. The moment we lose our curiosity, we lose our um, ability to enjoy life. You know, you should stay curious. And if you stay curious, then you are able to see more sides of the medal. Times may seem gloomy, but there might be something coming after this, which is an incredible improvement. And then the corona crisis has maybe proved to become, to have been a pressure cooker in which things have gone faster because of the circumstances. And we come out into a situation that is better, quicker than we would have been without it. So this is just a wee bit of optimism that I think is, uh, I hope is contagious because let's, let's embrace this optimism and look for solutions and the solutions we find through curiosity. So I think curiosity is a big one. Then the other one is postpone judgment. What I now see a lot uh, when people are tearing down statues of uh, historical heroes Postpone your judgment. Um, it has to do partly with, um, let's say, being sufficiently informed. Many people are not sufficiently informed to have a judgment on certain things. And be honest to yourself. If you're not in that position, then don't listen to people with a big mouth that you think you should follow. Try to search in your heart for the real meaning and the real truth. And um, at all times, try to preserve your, your dignity and judge with mildness. And um, because that's, that is always so much more pleasant. And, um, you know, if you have nothing nice to say to people, then don't speak at all. So postpone judgment when the judgment appears to be negative and not sufficiently, um, um, let's say, grounded and, and not sufficiently backed up by knowledge. That's another one. But uh, on the more positive side, these are, these are basically things that you should try mm -hmm. to avoid. Curiosity is one that you should always embrace, uh, combined with optimism. Um, the good thing is that I strongly believe in, there is an energy source within everyone that keeps you going, that actually makes you um, and keeps you active, and that makes that you don't have to sleep that much at night. 
um, that is very forceful and try to discover it, try to find it. It is within everyone. And if you have experienced all kinds of things in life, it might actually just help you to find it earlier than others. I mean, I also spent quite some time in my life in countries where people do not go for holidays, but um, it has taught me a lot. It has taught me to be grateful for the circumstances we live in and, um, and people that have never been to such countries or uh, such zones in the world, um, they might have become a little bit complacent and spoiled and not see it anymore. But you see sufficiently um, these, these areas on, on television, etc. Keep an open mind. Be grateful for what you have. Find your inner energy source and go towards the light. The light is there and share it because there is no greater joy in this world than giving what you have to give. And however limited your talent may seem to be according to yourself, share it with others. It is such a delight and you will be surprised to see what you get back. Wow. So powerfully yet so gently put. Beautiful words of wisdom. Thank you, Edmund, really. The things that I will ponder on as well, what you have said, because this infinite source of energy and wisdom that abides within each and every one of us is something that is to be discovered. Thank you so much again for your wonderful presence tonight. It was a great joy. Thank you very much, Mimi. And please come again. And maybe, maybe if we're lucky, I don't know, um, you may play for us at some point. I would love that. Absolutely. I would love that. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Have a beautiful evening, what's left of it. And I wish you all the most beautiful and wonderful things. Thank you so much, Mimi, likewise. And thank you very much for being there and doing this with and for your listeners. You're doing a fantastic, fantastic thing there. I admire you greatly. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. All right, then. Take care. Bye. 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 Edmund Fokker, what an absolute delight to hear such stories that really are so endearing to the heart where someone has followed their own quest in life and followed their own passion and in doing so is actually bringing so much joy to other people. Now we are really privileged I have to say tonight because Edmund is sharing with us three beautiful pieces that appear on his forthcoming album, Viva La Vida, which is going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks. And that's going to be available on all distribution channels such as iTunes and Spotify. So it is quite exciting, really, that he's honouring us with such um, a beautiful gift. Now, the first piece is Cavatina from the film The Deer Hunter, and that is in his own arrangement. 
And then we have Cinema Paradiso from Ennio Morricone with Joe Kem Jean at the piano. And then finally, we have the well-known main theme from the film Schindler's List by John Williams. Beautiful pieces and so beautifully done by Edmund. Relax, take a listen and enjoy. Look after yourselves. Until next time, lots of love.
Thank you for listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life, brought to you by your host, Mimi Novik. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and see you in the next episode. For more information about Mimi Novik and her books, music, and inspirational work, take a look at her website, www.miminovic.co.uk.